Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. His name is Sandro Rocco. Sandro is the founder and chief executive officer of Sanzo, the first Asian-inspired sparkling water. Sandro graduated from Villanova University with a degree in chemical engineering and began his career as a nuclear engineer at Exelon Corporation. He previously worked on a credit derivatives trading floor at JP Morgan and most recently served as head of growth and then chief of staff at Bombfell an online personal styling service. He launched Sanzo in 2019 with a mission of bridging cultures by connecting people to authentic flavors. Sandra, welcome to the show. Oh, so great to be here. Thank you so much to you both for having me. It's an honor. <laughs> no, it's an honor for us to have you on the show, man. You're a major celebrity now. Like, There's no, no one that we talk to doesn't know what your product is as to what Sandra is, you know? And it's like, it's hard to believe that you guys started in 2019, right? And it's so recent about like, everything that's happened to you, like your massive krill, seeing you everywhere, seeing all the Asian celebrities rave about your product. So walk us through your story, man. Like what was your upbringing like and how'd you become the person you are today? No, I appreciate that. So yeah, I mean, as you noted, like, you know, launched the brand in 2019, had the idea about like a year before that. And when and really like for me, it's interesting. Stand is kind of the culmination of, I guess, like my own, in many ways, like personal journey that I've had over the last few years. So I mean, I grew up in central New Jersey in an area that was not the most like, yeah, basically it was an area that I wasn't necessarily like, I wasn't picked on for being Asian, but I also wasn't necessarily invited to, you know, have this massive, you know, cultural identity exploration about myself. But, you know, in my twenties, early, yeah, really my late twenties started, you know, just really starting to dive in further into, you know, what my Asian American identity was, what it meant. Like I started kind of like, actually, I guess, becoming more interested in my parents and learning about them as people, not just, you know, not just seeing them as like mom and dad. And ultimately just wanted to show, I guess, like, well, both like one, have a a way of celebrating all of what's been happening, you know, in, in, in API culture over the last few years, you know, with a brand like Sanzo. But then also, and I'll say this, like, I'm not shy to say it, you know, a lot of my friends and a lot of my even college experience and even uh, post-college experience is around like folks not in the Asian American community. And so wanted to create something that could also help kind of bridge those cultures as well. You know, introduce my friends to another side of me that, you know, they maybe not seen before. So it's been, it's been an incredible journey. I know we're going to dive a lot further in, but you know, that kind of, I guess, like how, like, you know, the initial inspirations for, for the brand. 
That's so amazing. And like Brian mentioned, I just want to echo off what Brian said. I mean, we've seen so much growth with Sanzo in the last couple of years, and we've been just seeing it everywhere. I think that's so amazing. I think it's also, you know, even extra amazing that you say that your Persian culture is not only within the Asian community, but, you know, making sure that these drinks are getting into the hands of people outside the Asian community too, right? And it's a really, really great way for them to know about their our own food culture, our own drinks, our own flavors, our own fruits and everything like that. So that is so amazing. I know you were recently or you were previously an engineer. And so I think you kind of grew up and kind of went through that, you know, typical Asian journey. Yeah. A lot of our Asian parents want us to become engineers, doctors, <laughs> lawyers, and stuff like that. I want to know, how did you kind of get this entrepreneurial mindset? Did you get it from your family? Was your family, did they come from an entrepreneurial background as well? Sure. So I will actually have to say, in in all fairness, because if because if they if and when they listen to this, they would they would very much reject the notion that they forced me into my craft. I I will actually say like I love math and science. They're they're my two favorite. They're my two best subjects. They're one that just kind of gravitated to earlier on, and so. You know, my, my neither of my parents are engineers. Um, but to answer your question, it came from my grandfather, who on my mom's side, who was also uh, who wasn't who's a, a very successful entrepreneur in the Philippines. And my mom oftentimes will say, like, yeah, like it like skipped the generation, the the entrepreneurial bug. I think for them when they came over here, so both my parents are, are I'm Filipino on both sides. Um, and when they immigrated here in the '80s, you know, they're both you know fortunate. Grew up with you know, you know and got college degrees in in the Philippines. But really, when they got here, they just wanted to you know, provide the best possible life they could for my brothers and me. It was kind of the mid eighties or a bit of a tough political time for, um, for the Philippines. And they just wanted, I guess, you know, for their own selves and for, for us to just create as solid of a foundation as possible for us to, you know, pursue our own dreams. But so, yeah, they did not go that route, but that bug definitely came from my grandfather. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your parents would be so proud of you. Right. And I'm kind of wondering too, like, what was that transition for you, like personally to become an entrepreneur, right? Because I would imagine that, you know, most of your life and you, you're, you listen to your parents, they want the best for you. You, you work a very mm-hmm. stable job and now you enter a world of great uncertainty. You like, what's that joke? It's like you trade your nine to five to work 24 seven. I think it's really true <laughs> for entrepreneurship. Yeah. And what was that transition? Like the first couple of months for you, was it really rough? how did you overcome and overcome that and, and was like, okay, like, I want to continue working on this product. Yeah. So I was very fortunate that my parents were somewhat primed for this with my, with the, with the job that I took beforehand. So, you know, as you kind of laid out in my, in my intro, I started out as a nuclear engineer for three years, then went up to wall street for two years. And I ended up taking a close to 75% pay cut to leave my banking job for this startup gig where I was basically working the customer experience desk. I just wanted to build. I mean, those my first two jobs out of college, they were, you know, I graduated right into the financial crisis. And I'm not saying that like I wouldn't have done those either way, but it was definitely one of those scenarios where it was, especially my first job, I just kind of had to take something that feels stable. It was just nice to have a job after college. But I remember when I left my banking job for the startup job, that one was a difficult one for my parents. I think they understood that I wanted to build. There was definitely the feeling of, oh, is this the right one? You know, what could, what could, you know, like basically, I mean, enumerating all the risks that could, that, that could happen. So basically, since I did that already, uh, I think they kind of gave up on the second go around where I was like, now I actually, like at five years later, I was like, okay, mom and dad, like now I want to start my own company. I think I kind of just like, kind of beating them into submission um, on the on the last startup gig that they're just like, okay, like we don't get it. 
but the first one worked out pretty decently. So we'll just kind of follow your, your, your lead here. But I will say, you know, I, my own journey to, you know, starting the brand was, I think it, it was like a very fortuitous one. So at my last startup, you know, we were, the growth had kind of stalled and I was looking, the seedlings for the idea were kind of planted in me for about a year before I left. And in that year, I was very fortunate to have a very supportive CEO who said like, yeah, you know, do the work that you need to do here, but also sure on like nights and weekends, you know, we'll support you doing this. I mean, it was completely non-competitive anyway. So, you know, that was fine there, but just, you know, for this business being as expensive as it is and as labor intensive, I kind of did benefit from being able to keep a day job and like really moonlight for about a year. And like that year, I mean, it was very like, I just didn't really work or I didn't really stop working. I didn't really have much on the weekends, very much like saved up any money that I was still getting from the job to put it into this business. So it's kind of crazy in that regard, but I just had such conviction behind what that, what, what I thought the brand could be that I was having so much fun doing it, even though it was by myself, like it was the most like stimulating experience that I'd had by far professionally. <laughs> man, that's, that's a great, great story to hear. Right. And man, that's, Totally unheard of to have a boss that's supportive that supported silently yeah. because I know it's not competitive, but still it's like knowing that yeah. this person yeah. can leave you, like a key person in your team for a startup, especially. I mean, shout out to your old boss, man, for supporting that. And I do want to point out one more thing too. I know you mentioned earlier that that you graduated during the financial crisis. Is this, is this 2008 or 2009 or 2010? 2009. Yeah, that's a rough time, right? And I feel like, oh, yeah. I feel like a lot of people on our podcast that became entrepreneurs are from that time period. <laughs> right it's like at that time period for you guys don't understand it's like you graduate instability is a key right I, I just remember like applying for like 100 jobs and getting one interview it's insane right no one wants to hire us it's really sad and then once you get, get into your job it's like you know they're now laying off people in that company you're like what is mm-hmm. company loyalty like, what, how do i where would i be in my 40s and 50s right and that's something i think all of us think about that's so impacted by that generation that's the reason why we became entrepreneurs right yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like you're actually seeing something similar now with the advent of Web3 during the pandemic. And like, you know, we talk about the great resignation. I think there's other other terminologies folks are throwing out there. But I feel like what has been very interesting, and so like since I guess let's call, let's call it the last 13, 14 years, is that there's really been like a I think for folks who are willing to and want to like step into it there's a really like a like, like moment of like empowerment for, for folks who are working, you know, jobs to either like diversify revenue streams or just be able to like, just like tap into their creative self in ways that may not have been open to them, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And so it's, it's very interesting what a level of uncertainty in the market, like how, how like the yin and yang of that, where people just like adapt and create their own you know, mechanisms for their own personal growth, professional growth, you know, generating income, what have you. So yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that statement too. And I know for sure that you definitely paid your dues in like the first two years. <laughs> you're still paying your dues now. Like we just talked about this earlier, right before the podcast, you're always working really hard, keeping your head, like keeping your head low and just working like hard on your business and everything. But I'm kind of curious too, at one point, at what point as you're grinding it out, did you realize that, hey, like I need to do this full time. I need to leave my job. I need to grow my team. I need to fundraise. 
that's a huge transition, right? It's kind of scary for most first-time founders. How did you handle that? Like what, yeah. what came first? I want to, yeah, yeah, I want to piggyback on that too. I was just going to ask the same thing because I know there was an overlap from when you were working in corporate and when you were working on Sanzo. And so I want to know if you had like any goals that you set in mind, you know, getting to like a certain revenue projection or getting to, you know, the next product or something like that. Was there some sort of benchmark that you were looking forward to? Sure. So a lot of things are very different, right? Like when, like when to leave the job, when to fundraise, when to whatever, like a lot of these for me happened at different parts of the journey at the beginning. And I think this is, I think this is probably a logical, like a logical progression that most founders would take is, Hey, let me moonlight until, you know, I can pay at least like the rent. So maybe I'm not paying myself a salary, but at least paying myself a rent. And then, you know, I'm at least de-risked there. I think it's important for any first time founder, depending on what you're doing to kind of, I guess, heed this, which is in beverage and what that you, you couldn't like, there's no way that I was going to be able to do all the things that I needed to do to build this brand and also work a a full-time or even really like a part-time job. And the reason is because the way I decided to build this brand was like basically hitting the streets of New York City, pitching this to retail buyers, restaurant owners, literally would have a backpack and a hand truck full of sparkling water that I would take on the subway with me and just be going like literally like up and down in LES, East Village and whatnot. And you just like these folks work during the day, you know, like you're what I learned, like these retail and grocery buyers, you know, the best time to go in there is maybe like nine or 10 AM restaurants, like chefs, like they're not usually walking in and, you know, because they closed down the, you know, the restaurant from even before they're not walking in until around the same time. Also good time to catch them maybe like right after lunch. So like, like literally it just, it gets in the way of a regular work day. And so the calculation for me, it really became a leap of faith. It was a here's how much money I have in my own bank account. Here's how many months of rent I can survive. I have, yeah, I, I did build up throughout, you know, my last couple of jobs, like a decent level of savings, but it was like, this is either good. So for me, it was basically the thing's got to hit in about, for me, it was like roughly 15 months. And I was like, that's it. Like I'll, I'll assess, like I'm going to give myself that period of time. And then I'll assess as I get closer to that, but I'm also not going, I'm going to make this decision and not, like seed ground. Like, and so it wasn't a, I'm not going to basically commit it to making the decision and like not revisiting it for at least several months unless things are going like horrendously. But yeah, it was pretty, pretty leap of faith. <laughs> Ooh, what a relatable piece of content you just said right there. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's, it, it, it falls along the concept of like burning the ships and don't look back type of thing, or it's like, you really have to swim now. Otherwise like you're in a sink. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that with that feeling, it's like you do, you would do things you would never do because you have no other choice to do it. Yeah. Right. It, it's a, I would say it's a great motivation, but also something that you don't want to do that often. Like you can't make the best decision. You're back against the wall every single day. Right. Yeah. No, I, like for me. And again, like I, I very much empathize with founders and, and look, I'll, I mean, we can get into like some real candid stuff, like in the food and beverage industry, an unfortunate truth is that like you kind of do need some money in the beginning, whether it's your own or someone else's, it's like very hard to get started with like $0, like in the way that you might with, you know, if you're coding an app or a SaaS program and you can just kind of spin up uh, an instance of AWS and, you know, uh, a text editor, you know, it's just like food and beverage. You need, you literally need to, you need to buy raw goods, you need to pay someone to make the goods. You need to you know, maybe develop your, maybe find you can develop your own branding for free, um, but you just need to like pay for these goods. And so, yeah, the reason why I felt like I could make the leap was exactly that. Like you mentioned how, if you don't have any runway and I do feel this, if your runway is like low, I mean, I think it's actually been shown 
it, like for folks who have less money in their bank account, like you actually drop IQ points because you're not, you're, you're not making rational decisions. And so that's why I gave myself I was like, okay, I need this. I need enough runway for that long a time. So that I at least have several months to make enough, like at least intelligent decisions. And hopefully some of these would lead to extending my runway out and I can keep making, you know, decent enough, uh, being, being in, in, in enough of a mental state to, to make, you know, decent enough decisions. Yeah. So I very much agree with that. <laughs> I, I kind of, I tend to think of that. It's like a, it's like a racing game, right? It's like you keep running, mm-hmm, you hit the mm-hmm. checkpoint, it goes ding, you get oh, more yeah. time. <laughs> yep. oh, like, that's so good. You hit the, you hit the checkpoint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Could not agree. That's a, that's a great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of curious too. Like, I, I know that you gave yourself as much time, but I mean, the, the mindset from like becoming employee to an entrepreneur, to growing your company, to raising money mm-hmm. is a scary, scary leap, right? Just going out there and asking for your first check. And I know that with Asian cultures, like we typically don't like to do that. And let's be honest here. Like a lot of us don't have the luxury of doing that. Can you imagine yeah. asking your mom for like 50K or 100K? They'd be like, the hell is my retirement? <laughs> you know? yeah. What are you saying? Well, I want to hear more about your fundraising story and what kind of mindset and hat or like investor hat or like investee hat that you to put on in order to go out there and raise these funds. So, yeah, I mean, I went down that route saying I'm, and really in the beginning, I was pretty committed to it being my own money. So it really was mine. Uh, and over the course of 12 to 15 months, I'd say put in about this, I'd say about a hundred thousand dollars of my own, of my own money. It wasn't, it didn't take my bank account all the way down to zero, but you know, I'm definitely rebuilding it back right. You know, uh, like you know, I kind of as we speak, and so I really was focused on generating enough proof of concept with just you know the money that I had. And again, I know that's like not a lot. Not not everybody has you know that that hundred thousand dollars to you know to kind of put in and and get it off the ground. And I guess what I would say is I got kind of fortunate that you know with that money that I put in over that year was able to get enough proof of concept where I could then start raising around. And you know for me it was literally unfortunately, April, May, 2020 in the heart of the pandemic. But that's also when our business got really hot. We started, you know, when folks were unfortunately sheltered in place, you know, folks were quite scared to go to the grocery store or something like, I don't know, maybe, maybe even some grocery stores weren't open. Amazon orders were taking, you know, three, four weeks to arrive. And so we had a, we had a direct consumer site. And yeah, my former experience was at a head of growth, was as a head of growth at a startup. And so I basically went all in with all the remaining money that I could afford to put into the business and just put it to Facebook ads, Instagram ads. I also wanted to make sure I saved a little bit to like, you know, contribute to the community because we saw a big thing for me was like, I've worked in in certain restaurants earlier in my life. And it was very uh, earliest stories that I heard was that undocumented workers, you know, were kind of like going to immediately be like incredibly vulnerable because they couldn't call, they couldn't get unemployment. PPP loans are taking forever to get. And even then they're still, still kind of murky, you know, whether they get access to that. And so we were pretty, I was pretty big on like, Hey, if our business is going to have any success, like it can't just be me, you know, benefiting from it. Like it just felt weird and kind of unfair for that to be the case. But after that, it was like, well, we have a whole trajectory, we have a whole potential for growth here that I just can't fund. And that's usually a good reason to raise capital. And usually you can get people to give you money or invest money in your business when, when that is the story that you're telling. And so, you know, over basically six to eight weeks, I was able to put together, yeah, about like over a million bucks to, to, to be our first outside financing round. And a lot of that was a combination of like folks in the API community who, you know, maybe had their own, who had kind of heard of us in a couple of months before that and kind of started 
pushing it out to their networks. And then I'll also say like the direct, like the D2C and just general e-com community founders and like heads of product and early stage VCs who, who either were Asian American or are in the Bay Area and like they're really integrated into these communities. And so, you know, just kind of have uh, an extra 10, 25 or 50K to, you know, kick in. And it, that's just kind of, I mean, we can go deeper into that if you'd like, but like we were kind of off to the races after that. Let's go deeper. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I know you raise a lot from like prominent API leaders, right? And it's like, you built a relationship with a lot of them. I never seen investors rave about a product so much as yours, right? <laughs> Whenever <laughs> I go you. out to these API events, and trust me, 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 Maggie, go, go out to a lot of API events. <laughs> we see, oh yeah, yeah, a no, lot of your products everywhere. Yeah, your products were everywhere, and I think like especially during the pandemic, like I'm so glad that you were able to see that you know there was an opportunity for us, you know, as Asians to really represent and bring more of our culture out there. And we saw the same thing with Asian Hustle Network. Like we started yeah. Asian Hustle Network like a couple of months before the pandemic. We're like, shoot, like this is really bad. You know, what's happening with the Asian community is really, really bad. But then at the same time, we saw a lot of Asians coming together and actually like learning more about their heritage, learning more about their culture. Yeah. And I think that's what makes Sanzo so special. And I think another thing what Sanzo does really well is like you guys have such a unique story and a lot of other, you know, companies that have these, you know, sparkling water brands, most of these brands are just labels created by large multinational corporations that don't have a unique story, right? And they don't have a community, but you've really built that community and you've really, you know, pulled on a lot of like the Asian community's heartstrings and you're just like, you know, reeling them in because a lot of these people, they they have this like very, uh, what do you call it? Like it, it kind of goes back to their memories. Like, wow, I had these flavors when I was younger. I want to try these flavors, you know, like this brings me back to my childhood. So you've really created that unique story with Sanzo. Thank you. I mean, the only thing I'd say back to that is like, we have, we, and I guess I've tried to reach out to the community, but I, more importantly, like the community has gotten behind Sanzo. So, you know, I see it very much as a two-way street and one that like I owe even probably, I, I think I owe even a more significant, you know, debt back the other way. But yeah, I think, I, I think what you said is correct in that. And what I, I do believe is our you know, defensibility as a brand and just like what I just take such pride in is that we have that relationship, like both sides have invested in that relationship. And, you know, we're just like very grateful for, you know, the, the, the way the last two years have gone for us. I love it. I love it. And again, like I, Maggie and I love seeing your growth. We will know that we see a lot more of your growth in the future. Uh, I want to talk about something really funny or fun or like a fun su subject. And I want to hear about how you came up with your flavors, right? And Ooh. how many lists of flavors did you have initially? And which ones you're like, oh, heck no. Like, even though you thought the flavor is <laughs> going to taste good, it tastes horrible, right? Let's, let's just talk through like the brainstorming session of like how you chose your flavors so far. And talk about the, the bottles you had too, because I know you went through some I know, let's hear the it. bottles. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I forget. Y'all do your research. So the first flavor, and actually the first idea was, the genesis of it wasn't even necessarily just like, oh, it needs to be a, an Asian fried sparkling water. One of the first things that I actually thought about was, as a Filipino-American, I was like, hey, calamansi is like a pretty special citrus fruit. It's got obviously like these pretty obvious like lime hints, but also has like a roundedness and tangerine flavor and an oranginess. And I was just like, 
that's like great. I mean, we, like, and then as Filipinos, we only, we, we typically use it more just like as like a garnish or like just like to add acid to like sisig or other, like other dishes. But like, where, like, I just felt like there was room here to like explore that flavor more. I mean, and then, and, and, and part of my thought was like, if folks can get around pronouncing acai or drinking kombucha and like get their arms around that and make those big things, then like surely to me, getting folks to connect with and to a fruit like calamansi would have, you know, shouldn't be like as difficult as long as, you know, there's a good brand and a good story behind that. So I actually originally started making like a, a very popular Filipino drink called it's called calamansi juice, but it's really like a limeade. The only problem was way too much sugar and while, yeah, while delicious, it just wasn't something that I was willing to drink a lot of because of the high content of the high sugar it actually became like a big thing for me. It was like, okay, if I'm feeling this way, like, and that was a bit of a thing for me too. Like I wanted a drink that, that I could consume over and over and over again. And I unfortunately felt like as much as I love our legacy Asian brands, you know, that are mostly coming from you know, mostly imports. I, I'm just being honest. Like I can't drink them every day. Like I just, I know too much. I used to be a very obese child um, and got out of that phase. And I'm like, I can't go back. Um, and so I then just started thinking about, well, okay, well, what if you put calamansi in sparkling water at the time? And yeah, I still do like, we'll drink like a tequila soda or a vodka soda or things like that. And that was kind of how that, those wheels started turning. And so the calamansi is the first one. So like the next two, I just kind of figured three was going to be the magic number to, to, to launch with. That one was going to be my sour or tart flavor. And then it was, I was just looking at other sparkling water brands and I was like, okay, you need one much sweeter flavor just to accommodate that profile. I originally started using Philippine mangoes, but we since obviously now have migrated over to the Indian Alfonso mango. But so that one was actually kind of like a weirdly uh, intuitive thing for me. And then the last one, which actually for most folks would probably think it would be the most intuitive was actually my last flavor. And is recommended to me by my friend who's just like, if you're starting an Asian sparkling water brand, like you absolutely have to have lychee. And, and so it actually came together relatively like quickly like that. I mean, I did taste, I did try out and it actually was delicious. So I did a tamarind one. It was delicious. Unfortunately, if you can imagine tamarind paste dissolving in water, you know, to me, food and beverage is every bit about as as much like you you eat with your eyes as much as you do with your nose and your and your mouth. The uh, I'll just say the color of the beverage was not something that was that we thought was going to scale well, you know, with customers. So that was a fun one. We did something with like a papaya blend of sort. And, oh, that was terrible. It like, it, it, I mean, I haven't yet tried experimenting with durian, but I would imagine that durian is going to be a much stronger uh, bouquet <laughs> um, as, as the papaya one. And so those are definitely two like eye-opening experiences because like carbonation really just brings out like it, the carbonation takes any flavor profile that is in the underlying liquid and just like amps it all the way up. And that's why I think we've had some success here with like the calamansi. We just launched the Yuzu Ginger um, with the lychee. Like, I, I think that's why we've had some success. But then you also learn about certain fruits and flavors that like have certain things that you kind of just like dismiss or you, you just kind of fold them into the overall profile. Oh no, those things get like like multiplied by a lot once you start carbonating the drink. So Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I am going to be on the wait list for the durian one. You should do it. I don't care. I'll have the durian sounds on one hand and a pack of gum on the other. We'll, <laughs> I like it. Uh, we'll single-handedly keep your sales up for the durian side. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so when you were creating these flavors, Sandra, were you the only one who was like taste testing these and trying to see like what tasted good? And then did you eventually get a food scientist to start like actually going down to like the specifics and the chemistry of it? Um, and then when was that that point when you were like, OK, maybe we need to we do need a food scientist? Yeah. So the um, the very first formulations were, were done by me. It was mostly in my kitchen apartment with a weighing scale, or a kitchen scale, a uh, Google sheet, and like measure measuring cups and twelve ounce cans of Canada Dry. Um, and so what I would do is I would, I would make a formulation, and then I'd also record the cost to make it. It's like the way uh, I, I, we know that like chefs do that all the time. You know. It's can I make something good? Can it scale to be done in a kitchen setting? And then also, you know, we still have to pay for the, you know, we still have to pay the rent here. So, you know, I built up that model and literally would have like, do I like this? And then how much does it cost? So that was, that was step one. To your point, I did learn pretty early on from talking to other, you know, food and beverage founders, like, Hey, there's certain FDA requirements or certain you know, food science thing, health and safety inspection things that just have to be, you know, abided by in order to, like not just sell legally, but for me also, I'm like, I really cared that they, as I would hope most food and beverage entrepreneurs care about like not harming their customers. Um, and obviously something that you ingest can do, you know, harm to your body. If not, if not, if not done well. So at that point worked, I got connected with the, there's a, it's attached to Cornell university called Cornell food labs. Basically what they do is you send them the recipe and then they tell you, Hey, you need to incorporate these steps to make sure it's a, like the food is like, like it's a safe product for ours specifically because we use real fruit juice, but folks, oops, sorry, but folks can now buy the drink. It's shelf stable. Like it doesn't need to be refrigerated when you buy it. It had to go undergo pasteurization, which essentially just means like heating, like heating the can up to a certain temperature and holding it there for a certain period of time. So it kills all the microbes in in the juice that could possibly, you know, cause it to ferment and taste very, maybe it cause it to taste very badly. As far as timing goes, like, that you have to do early on. Like you can't actually sell a beverage like this without getting that done. So that was probably within the first like three months of, of like starting the company or starting the, like, even like having like the initial like idea. That's amazing. I just love hearing like the background information about and the process <laughs> behind it because I'm sure there's a lot of other people who are just like selling it without even going through the correct protocols. But I love how <laughs> you're just doing everything correctly. It takes more time. It, it's a cost of a lot more headaches, but I think we're paying. I think we're. I think we're reaping the dividend, the, the rewards from have, for having done so. And even if it ferments, you just call it kombucha, right? <laughs> <laughs> to a certain point, and then it becomes basically vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about the the not so fun part of running a business, and especially this past year or so, especially twenty twenty one. So the supply chain issue, right? I know for a fact that it's causing a lot of the inflation that we see nowadays. And I would imagine that it probably has heavily impacted your business as well. What is going on with this production and the impact that it has for your, for your company? Yeah. I mean, I guess two things that I would say are we've been pretty fortunate that, you know, to obviously have a lot of growth over the last few years. And so growth can with growth comes some margin for error and I'll say inefficiencies for things like, you know, higher costs of freight. I mean, that's probably the biggest one <laughs> for higher costs of freight, especially. So we have been very fortunate there. We also, and again, like it's something that we're constantly looking at, but look like we do, you know, we do sell our product for a bit of a premium over what else is in the market. I'll say in the beginning that was like necessary. I mean, it's still, it still very much is, but necessary now for, different reasons. It was necessary in the beginning because I was buying things at such a small scale. It was the only way I could even like 
keep myself afloat in the early days. And so we were pricing you know, in line with other you know, premium sparkling beverages in our, in our category. What that has allowed us to do, though, as we've scaled is basically have a little bit more money uh, available to pay for, you know, to pay the higher freight costs. Basically, folks that operate already very low margin businesses, they're the ones who got incredibly squeezed and their business models got really turned upside down. Fortunately for us, like we've had, we've been able because of our growth to get a lot of efficiencies to be able to kind of couch some of those. Yeah, basically specifically couch like those higher, you know, freight costs. Okay, that's good to know. I'm really glad that you're unaffected or mainly sort of unaffected by the supply chain and continue to grow. And I want to focus a little bit more upon your um, your day to day. And I know for in your life, you are currently engaged, right? Yeah. And you congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you met your significant other. I'm kind of curious, like, it sounds like you're working all the time. And how do you balance like your work life balance and your relationship? It seems so healthy, right? Like, I look at your social media accounts. It's like, <laughs> you guys are so in love. And it's like, dang, how's he doing it all? <laughs> you know? So just walk us through your day today. And how do you manage your time? Yeah, I mean, I have a very supportive partner. So that's like, number one. I mean, and that, and that is big, like no one, you know, it's funny, just last night, I was having dinner with uh, Sarah Wynn from when coffee supply and she's, and she's also, you know, just, you know, just recently got engaged and she also talks a lot about how and we both talk about how like, our partners being such like actual, like an active supporters for us. Like we don't have co-founders, but like they're about as close as you could possibly get. And so I'll say that, like, I don't do this alone, not by any means. It's not easy. I mean, we are, I mean, I, I will say I have been Get, I, I've gotten better at compartmentalizing weekends, mostly because I also we also need to because we are planning a wedding, and so again, like creating that constraint forces me to just get you know like be more efficient you know throughout the course of the week. But look, like everything has its trade offs, right? I mean, I, there's only tw- I, I have the same 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week than anybody else would have. So you know, unfortunately, you know, I probably don't talk to my friends nearly as much as I would like to. I think in some ways it's a little easier because um, that's why I'm now 34 about like turning 35 this year. And a lot of my friends already have kids. So they've so several of our friends have already kind of moved on to that phase in life. But yeah, between the business, planning a wedding with Issa and yeah, I'll say occasionally seeing my, 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 and talking to my parents, that's most of my time. It's not actually that, that exciting. It's just a lot. It's just really me working a lot. <laughs> No, but I love seeing your posts with your fiance and, you know, I see the same thing in like Sarah and her fiance too. Like they are so supportive of each other, just like how you and your fiance are. And that, that really goes a long way, you know, just to have someone be supportive of you and just push you forward and be, you know, a sounding board whenever you need them is so important. So, so important. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you guys found time for each other and so glad that you're able to, you know, compartmentalize your schedule because that's so important, right? And I think I used to, I used to like, think it's kind of funny when my friends are like, oh, I need to like schedule in my calendar when I'm having date night with my significant other. And I was like, when we're running your own business, like, yeah, like you need to do oh, that. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> or, most importantly, I find it's, it needs for us, we, we put it on the calendar because it's then harder to remove it. Right. If we just say, hey, we'll get there hey. on Tuesday night, but then something else can come up. Like you feel like, I feel really like we have our, we have our wedding planning touch bases. Um, every Wednesday night, uh, we're, we're getting obviously more frequent with it now as we're, we're, so we're getting married like two months from now. So those are getting more frequent, but like, yeah, because it was on every, in the beginning, it was on every Wednesday night. It was like, okay, I I just know I'm not planning anything for Wednesday night. Like in the world of like beverage operations, we talk a lot about creating processes that are 
that are truly brick walls, not a stop sign, not a speed bump. Anybody can roll over a speed bump. Anyone can um, unfortunately go through, go through a stop sign. You have, you have a harder time. You have a much harder time going through a brick wall. And for us, yeah, putting something on the calendar is about as close to a brick wall as you could get. <laughs> that's a great tip. And for your listeners, that's how you that's how we manage everything, okay? You have to <laughs> set in schedule, including our, our personal lives. Uh, so I asked, we have one more part to the podcast where I want to bring it back to your company a bit more. I want to yeah. hear more about how you create your culture and how you hire people correctly, right? Because I, I think that it's such an important thing where you're at and where you used to be just growing and scaling. So you have the wrong people in the wrong places. It actually causes you a lot more work, right? And yep. you don't have the right culture. Like you're, you're kind of doomed. And I want to mm-hmm. hear about you as a leader. How do you one hire people and how do you maintain a strong culture in your company? Yeah. I mean, the two biggest things that we screen for, and a lot of it ends up being, you know, personality, but you can also see it through, uh, you know, we give certain take-home assessments and things like that. Like you kind of like observe behaviors throughout the interview process. Two things that we look for: one, folks who want to build. It sounds so simple, uh, but like I think it, it's a very different mentality. You know, going into an early stage startup versus a company that's more pre-established. And neither are wor- nothing's better or worse per se than the other. But it's just about what fits at what stage. Someone who might be you know, like the most organized person who has like, you know, who thinks like everything through, you know, might be an amazing senior leader for a big company because like like any little steer of that huge cruise ship, like can have like ripple effects down downstream for us. Like we are, we really privilege folks who are just like, who just move to act like, like they're, 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 they have a bias towards action. And it's just apparent, usually we can see it typically through like the way that they talk about the work that they've done. We even put in our job descriptions that we're we're specifically giving extra looks to people who have a a demonstrated, like a demonstrated, like you've actually seen it either in your job or you or your parents have either had like a side hustle or your parents operated, uh, are a small business owner, something like that. Just like it it is something that like when you're around, you just get up and around you need to like kind of oftentimes just like kind of learn. And so that's like a big one for us. And then the second half of that is more of a personality perspective is we really screen for folks who are empathetic. It's actually like empathy is actually our number one core value at the business. And you know, a lot of that times can come through like, just like how a person, like how a person answer, answers some questions, how they respond back to emails, like scheduling up time. If, if they're talking to other team members, like what's their reaction? Like, are they respectful? Like, how, like just how do they, how do, how do people comport themselves? And so, I mean, those are easily the two biggest things that we screen for. And then after that, the hope is, you know, they, that, that, that when they come on, like our my big thing is like, our goal is to empower you. Yeah, you know, I don't have like the way that our brand is growing. We don't want, and I don't have the bandwidth to micromanage. You know, we're going to really screen to make sure that folks who are coming in, we can empower them to to be autonomous. You know, on like maybe not on day one, but like pretty pretty closely after. And I will say, like in full candor, you know, like we are moving fast. We do need folks to 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 keep up. Um, we think this is an amazing place to work if you're able to, but also like, yeah, like we, we do screen for folks who are able to kind of like get off the starting block pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I really like the answer a lot. And Jason Wiley of Julia Media would be oh, quite yeah. proud of that. <laughs> yes, he preaches empathy all the time. And that, that empathy piece is so important, though, because I feel like that could be so easily be like a domino effect. Like when you notice that one person isn't being empathetic or, you know, the opposite of that, it causes other people to have like a bad mood as well. So it's really important. I also want to learn more about, you know, from the pandemic, we know that there have been a lot of you know new CPG brands, especially in the sparkling water field. And so I kind of want to know and, and just curious about like how you view competition, right? And like how often are you like going into like just researching the market and seeing if there's any other new brands out there that are coming up with uh, new sparkling water brands? It doesn't have to be Asian, but I want to know like how you're viewing the competition right now because there's there's just been so many new brands of like sparkling waters and like drinks and everything on the market recently. Yeah. I mean, I was literally just texting yesterday with Jeremy Kim from Nectar. So, I mean, if that's any notion, and then we were together, like we were at an event together and he was at my table back in December. I mean, if that's any notion. It's like, it's to say competition, sure, but much more collaborative. I mean, you know, I mean, especially in the world of CPD, like you need multiple brands to build a category or a set. And so we've all been, at least the ones that I know, you know, we've all been pretty collaborative and looking for ways to help each other out. You know, they're, they're obviously TikTok fiends. And where we think we have, uh, yeah, where, where we think we've done well is in distribution. You know, I think we have like, I think we have like a product that is, that has resonated, but then in beverage, it, people have to be able to find it or if they want it, like, or if they're in a store, even if being in the right place where a customer can, can discover you, you know, is, is I think something that our team has done, well, yeah, pretty well in our, in our early days. And so like, we're all like, whether it's sparkling water or hot sauce or sauce pack or sauce starters or coffee, like I just see it as all like collaborative and like all like moving, like, like pushing the ball forward. So we, I mean, the, the best way that I would say it is like, we, we, we celebrate it. And like, am I actively looking at other brands? I would say less so. Maybe I was a little bit more. I'm more, if I'm being honest, looking at brands that are ahead of us, brands that have maybe raised a couple more rounds of funding. I specifically look at kind of glo- what I what I consider the like global iconic brands like San Pellegrino, Perrier, Tupac Chico, and basically how we can be that. I and then you know for the folks who might be who may have started after us, how can I uplift them? But as far as like where I go for my inspirations, I'm more like we're more looking at folks who are further who are a bit further ahead than us. Yeah, I think you put that perfectly. And it's the same thing with Asian Hustle Network. You know, there's there's been a lot of Asian communities that have grown and, and came from, you know, the pandemic, but we need more of them. You know, it's it's always better to see more of them so that we have a category to refer back to than to see none of it at all. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so Sandra, we have one last question for you. And okay. that is, if you could give one advice to an API entrepreneur, what would that one advice be? Right now, I mean, I guess this would go for any founder, but I guess for an API founder, it's like, I would say something very simply is like, just, just build. I, there's so many, there's so many distractions today. And so maybe this is like, maybe I don't need to say this to folks who are, who have already taken the lead and become founders or maybe folks who are considering it. There really are so many ways. There's so many disincentives and so many ways in which there's so many things out there that will dissuade you from doing it. You are really the only person with enough willpower and conviction over what you're building that will actually get it 
off the ground and moving. And so if this is something that you want to do, this is something that you've aspired to do in your life, be some kind of creator, whether it's in entrepreneurship or let's say, or in, let's say like the entertainment industry, you've always wanted to write a script or, you know, act or, or, or what have you or sing or something or write music. Literally the only thing you can do is just do it. Stop reading about what other people are doing or getting you know, like like taken taken off your path. I do think in any form that I can get in with the, with the founder, it's like I think the best thing I can kind of just give them is the reassurance that like if you just build and can just actually like zone out stuff and just focus, it's amazing the things you can accomplish. But unfortunately, I think this world has just kind of created so many opportunities for folks to not hit that deepest level of of focus and like and like flow state. So create those opportunities to, to actually be able to create. Not so much. Bottom line is to just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Take action, baby. Take, Take action. action. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Sanzo. So where can our listeners find out more about you and Sanzo online? Yeah. So you can visit us at drinksanzo.com. Our primary channels on social media, our handles are at drinksanzo, and that's across TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. And then, you know, Wherever you're listening to us, um, you know, you can also, whether you can buy, you, you can either buy us on drinksanzo.com or Amazon, or increasingly, you know, we're, we're getting a lot more distribution. So we have a store locator on our, on our website where you can, you know, where you can look and find us. Well, I'll go pick us some after, right after this podcast right now. I'm thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know we heard, we sort of bits and pieces of your story before, and it's like, it's always great hearing it again and again and again. And it's crazy hearing how much growth you have. So we're going to for sure tap you on the shoulder again in a year or two to have you back on the podcast. I want to hear all about your updates and your progress, man. Thanks so much. And thanks for all you do. Really, uh, Folks like me couldn't do it without communities like what you're building. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sancho. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.